Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. This week, the Scottish referendum. The votes have been counted and it's a no. Many have said this was the result the media wanted, so was there a bias and did it affect the result? Podcasts. Over the last few years, podcasts have been growing in popularity, but the latest figures show that only one in three adults have ever actually listened to one. Are we all wasting our time? And politician phone-ins. Political engagement is supposed to be at an all-time low, yet LBC is doing better than ever with Cole Clegg and Ask Boris. Are weekly phone-ins the new way of holding to account the powers that be? And as usual, we're joined by two of the media's best and brightest. Helen Zaltzman is a podcaster, broadcaster and writer. And Tim Johns is a producer of The Jeremy Vine Show on BBC Radio 2. Media Focus. So, first up, did media coverage unduly sway the Scottish referendum result? The Scottish Herald was the only major Scottish paper to come out in favour of independence. And cultural studies professor John Robertson has accused the BBC of giving too much airtime to the Better Together campaign. Tim. Did the unruly crowd of yes protesters outside BBC Scotland have a point? I'm afraid uh, I can't comment on that because I work for the... No, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, that was um, good. You've opened many different cans of worms there. There's newspapers, the BBC, the academic study, and then the protesters outside Pacific Keen in Glasgow, and they're all very different. The protesters... I'll start with that, which was your question. The processors outside Pacific King. Glasgow, personally, if I'm completely honest, I don't think they had a point because they were there primarily uh, off the back of the Nick Robinson incident. And for anyone not quite aware of how that panned out, let me just briefly explain. So it arrived on my timeline, which is how it arrived on many people's timelines on Facebook, with a Yes supporter posting a video of Nick Robinson. It was very short and it just goes, look at this clip from his BBC 10 o'clock report. And it's got Nick Robinson goes, Alex Salmond, why should we trust uh, you over all these big financial institutions who are coming out and making comments about moving south? Which is arguably a legitimate question. Indeed, and people have been debating whether it was or not, and I'm not really interested in that on this topic. In the report, you then see Nick Robinson go, he didn't answer. He did, however, attack the BBC. Clip ends. Along with that is a YouTube link to the full what actually happened where Nick Robinson asked the question and then Alex Salmon does literally respond. Oh, the truth is so boring, isn't it? Mm. He responds, but he does not answer that question. And in, you know, in broadcasting, if you're doing a political narrative, it's perfectly legitimate to, to summarise what happened, that he didn't answer that question. Now, you can argue whether that's right or wrong again, but he treated Alex Salmon the same way he treat any guest uh, who he was talking to in a political nature. So... That, I think, wasn't biased. It, it looks terrible and like a conspiracy and everything else. Of course, the, the Facebook post misses out the fact that he then goes on to play a massively long clip of Alex Salmon slagging off the BBC. But never mind. But the BBC just can't win, I think, because like with the European election where they were accused of giving too much time to the extreme right parties. But if they didn't do that, then those parties say, well, the BBC are ignoring us. Why is that? They're not representing the people's views. So I just feel like whatever they do, someone is going to complain about it. But that's a good thing, isn't it, Shirley? If you've got you know, equal numbers of people on both sides of the argument saying you're biased against them, then usually you've got it about right. Evidently, yes. It seems a reasonable litmus test. But Ellen, what do you think? I mean, do you think the, the media was largely pro-no, as it were? I found it, uh, my, my view was, I think, pretty distorted by uh, the people that I follow on Twitter and I'm friends with on Facebook because I think generally there was about three times as much social media engagement from the yes campaign as there was from the no campaign. The so, cyber nuts. <laughs> so to me, it seemed like yes was pretty likely, but that's just because it's younger commentators probably being on Twitter and they're very loud and the views spread. So it seems maybe more powerful than it actually was. 
Um, you know, if a lot of the more elderly population of Scotland, their views might not have been thus represented and yet they were registered to vote and did do so. I mean, clearly, I think the BBC, being an on-air broadcaster, has a duty to be um, impartial, as it were, Tim. But what do you think in terms of the actual printed media? Because only one newspaper came out in favour of yes. Do you think there was a bias overall? I think inherently across the entire media spectrum, I think it would be slightly ridiculous to suggest that there was not some sort of unavoidable bias slightly towards no, just because... Just like in Scotland, if you've got a newspaper where it's 70-30 split over yes-no sort of potential voters, of course, that newspaper is going to go uh, along the no campaign, not least because a higher proportion of its readership probably is. So it's no surprise that the press across the board went for the no. But also I think there's a big, big distinction in press and in broadcast to differentiate between an underlying bias and what that actually does to votes, crucially. So people go, you... Because I, I work on the Jeremy Vine show and we're very careful, obviously, especially in the Perda period before the election, of, mm. of doing that balance. And the Sickeningly neutral. Sickeningly neutral. But <laughs> but again, there's... Ba- I mean, you had a great discussion on this podcast a few weeks ago with Ian Dunt and that difference between if the polls are, say they're 70-30, they weren't, but say they are, do you balance that by having equal airtime to both sides? It's uh, I won't go into that question right now. We tried to cut out most of Ian's appearances on this podcast, but I agree some got in. <laughs> <laughs> But the, the crucial point is, uh, on our programme, and uh, this is a bit like some of the columns that I've seen, the opinion columns, which have been a bit patronising towards Scots, just because they're very no doesn't mean they're going to influence the vote that way. So, for example, we had a yes and a no guest debating some topic or other, and then we had a couple of callers. And I think on that day I'd noticed we'd had um, we'd had like two what you would tick off in an academic study as no callers. And then we had a third no caller, and we put them on. And they said something like, they must remain in the union, it's 300 years of history, and they, you know, what are they complaining about? They're, they're living off our tax money and that Barnet thing, and they get more, and they should be very grateful. And just that real patronising undertone. <laughs> and right after that, I took three calls in a row from people who phoned up from Scotland, driving somewhere, saying, that last caller has convinced me to vote yes. <laughs> so you can't just... Uh, you can't do an academic study which said, oh, well, three no callers came on, therefore there's a bias in favour of the no campaign. I don't think it works like that. Well, so remember uh, the last general election when uh, suddenly Nick Clegg was getting a lot of coverage everywhere and everyone's like, maybe the Lib Dems will get a majority vote. <laughs> and they didn't really get many more votes than they usually do. And yet Clegg-mania. there was a lot. More, yeah, exactly. There was a lot more noise about it. And I, I wonder whether mm. this was a similar scenario, which makes you think, does the internet at least influence people's votes at all yet significantly. Do you think it does? I mean, you mentioned earlier that you've got a lot of your news on the referendum f- via Twitter and so on. In a sense, you're self-selecting who you want to hear from. So if there was mm. a pro-yes bias, that might be because you're following too many yes people. Indeed. Or, well, at least I can't vote in uh, that particular referendum anyway, so uh, it's meaningless uh, how skewed I am. Tim, do you think it's difficult, though, for broadcasters generally? Because if you're going to tweet uh, or you're going to write a newspaper article, you can clearly be biased, but it must be difficult on air. With yes, no, in a sense, it was an unusual thing because you just have to put a yes and a no guest on. But if you're getting more nuanced subjects, if you if you put one pro and one anti, for example, vaccination, MMR and things mm. like that, you can't put a, a you know a pro MMR and, a, and an anti because 99% of the science is with one of the guests. And that's a very difficult question that broadcasters are still coming to terms with. 
I think sometimes broadcasters get it wrong, and I think sometimes the BBC get it, gets it wrong, and when it does, actually, it's right up there in lights. I mean, the classic recent example is Lord Lawson on the Today programme on the climate change, sort of mm. broadly, here's a pro-guest, here's an anti-guest. I mean, that was one example of one anti-guest, and that went off to a committee and a special report, and it was up in lights that the BBC's done this terrible uh. thing, and that's... I love how the BBC ties itself up in knots with all these existential angst moments. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad it happens, but It'll in another the sense, it's quite sad. Flagellating organisations on the, on the planet. Well, about a million years ago, I uh, was a temp and I was the secretary on the 1, the 6 and the 10 o'clock newses. And every day I had to look through the complaints levelled at those programmes. And in November, there would be about 80 complaints a day about which lapel newsreaders were wearing their poppies on. And yet <sighs> they're all wearing them on, on different lapels. It wasn't it wasn't all right lapel or left lapel. So there's no consensus amongst the complaints. And I'd imagine if they wore them smack in the middle like a headlamp, that wouldn't have gone down that well either. People love to complain Can about I, whatever happens. May I just add one <laughs> aside about complaints briefly? Um, people do complain about everything. And my favourite complaint against me was when I did a package about um, Saharan sand coming over and descending on London and everyone's cars were covered in sand because of freak weather. And at one point, I drew a smiley face on the car outside to demonstrate. And we got a massive stream of complaints going, he might scratch the paintwork. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Depends what you were drawing with. If it was a screwdriver, you might have scratched the paintwork. Well, that's, that's true. But Helen, as a fellow podcaster, how do you do it on your podcast? Because it's quite informed. But on the other hand, mm. you've still got to maintain the confidence and trust of your listeners. They're not too much trouble, really. They love writing in when we've got things factually wrong. Because they like uh, feeling that they've got one up on us. And do you want to tell our listeners uh, why you're a podcaster? In fact, they might not why know. Why I am. Well, what do you do? Uh, I make a podcast called Answer Me This. Never heard of it. Ah, oh, well, you're like the majority of people alive, I <laughs> guess. Answer Me This. What's it, is, it about? It is a legend in the podcasting <laughs> community. Yeah, That's nice to know, because, you know, we're just people in my living room in Crystal Palace in suburban London. Uh, and we've, just be, we've been making it for nearly eight years at this great point. great fun. Episode 300 is almost upon us. But wow. we take we take questions from our listeners and we don't have an enormous uh time or monetary resource for research so we do the best that we can and and sometimes it comes out wrong but generally when we're choosing what goes on the show we try and think about a bit about the feelings of the people involved because people write really personal stuff we'll get teenagers writing and not thinking oh it's a comedy podcast where they rip people to shreds they'll write in about cutting or the fact that they're depressed or like some really personal stuff so we just don't put it on and that saves us i think a lot of problems how do you, if you don't mind me asking, how do you deal with things like that then? Even off air, do you, do you reply to them? Or? Um, I try to I try to email them, um, but I'm not a trained counsellor, so yeah. the, the best you can do is just you know, just acknowledge their pain and try not to make it worse, I guess, and try and refer them to something that might be able to help them more professionally than I can. But it is a bit of a worry. Some of them I th- I try and keep track of a bit and just check they haven't topped themselves. Oh, that's terrible. But that's a tiny minority. Most of our listeners, I think, are fine. Tim, you're very kind to put me on the Jeremy Vine show semi-regularly and I always get a boost in Twitter followers afterwards, but I would say about half of them are mental. And I just wondered... <laughs> no, I just, no comment on yeah, that. But I just wondered what the kind of proportion was because you must get people ringing into the show. How do, you, how do you filter out whether they're clearly insane or not before you put them on air? It must be worrying. Or do you want them to be clearly insane? I try really hard to treat everyone who calls and emails with respect. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, if someone phones up and complains about something, absolutely ridiculous, the temptation is to completely write them off. But there's still one of our listeners somewhere sitting at home with their own opinions, and that's the reason we're broadcasting. So, first of all, I guess I try absolutely not to do the whole dismissive thing. However, when you are talking about certain subjects and you do get a string of um, 
the same sort of opinion. For example, if you're talking about ISIS and then you just get a string of people saying things like, not our problem, don't get involved, or mm. uh, being racially offensive, it can be a bit draining. So there's a lot, there is a lot of filtering to get uh, on any topic you want, a balance of opinion, you want good talkers who can express it well, and you know you want them to, to, to bring the discussion alive with, with maybe different points that we haven't heard before. So there is a lot of filtering to, to get to that. And that's, I think that's a big difference between manufacturing uh, a phone in where you go, we need, oh, we need this call, so we've just got to find that call and put them on, and trawling through to get a real lively balance that reflects what people are saying. But also, presumably, the kind of people that are calling in they're going to have extremes of opinion. You very rarely call into something if you feel six out of ten about it. Mm-hmm. That's true. And most people who phone radio shows are, are, are not the same people necessarily that you're sitting next to in the pub because uh, most people don't call radio shows most of the time. I think we're lucky because we have such a big audience and we often cover such niche topics that I think we do get people who go, oh, you are talking about the precise thing that happened to me. I've just, I have to tell someone because I can't believe you're talking about that. So we do get that and we do have first time callers on a lot. So we're, we're lucky in that respect. Excellent. Well, I think we need to move on to topic two now. So it's a bit meta this one, but will podcasts ever go mainstream? Podcasters like Helen and indeed the team here have long awaited the fabled year of the podcast. But while the number of people who listen to podcasts is increasing, recent figures show that only one in three adults have ever actually listened to one. Helen, answer me this is widely regarded as the second best podcast in the world. <laughs> but will podcasts ever go truly mainstream? Well, uh, firstly, I'd like to take issue with uh, your your <laughs> recent figures of one in three because those were being bandied about two years ago. So I think that that the audience numbers have increased because more and more people have access to the tech. My mum, who's 66, I think, has started listening now just because she's got a Kindle Fire. The technology is cheaper work. and it's so much easier and it's just one click away. I will and have flogged the person who, who gave me that information. Absolutely. Flogging's too good for him. I agree. Uh, I don't think that kind of thing. Uh, but, but secondly, even one in three, to me, is brilliant news. Mm. That's a great figure because for the first few years that I was podcasting, I had to explain to everybody what one was. So RSS that's really feed. good. I mean, that word was problematic. I don't, mm. I don't even want to understand the principles of RSS, personally. It's witchcraft. That's it, all you need to know. It's delivery witchcraft. So I think, um, although the year of the podcast hasn't necessarily struck in Britain yet, because I don't think we have as much need for podcasts as other countries, because we have a lot of radio and uh, it's pretty good. I mean, it, it caters for most tastes. In America, podcasting, I think, has become mainstream. Some people are turning over serious money got a lot of media organizations are putting a lot of a lot of weight behind it a lot of finance a lot of really good people and uh, and also they make money because their normal radio is always panhandling so listeners over there are used to handing over money to hear stuff whereas over here we don't have to do that so i think we're a few years behind i also think this is the best time thus far to be a podcaster tim i was quite an early adopter of the old podcast idea and when i did student radio we used to podcast Back in the day, you know, when it was like, <laughs> oh, how how on earth do you do this? And finding a bit of code and putting it in here yeah. and doing all this tagging stuff. It, it was, was awful then. It was awful. Now and it's as easy as starting a blog, which is easy. It's easy, isn't it? Yeah. Now it's, Look at us. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's changed beyond all recognition. It's amazing that on my phone standing at the airport, which I did yesterday, I thought, oh, I've listened to your podcast because oh, I confess I hadn't heard Answer Me This until yesterday and it's brilliant. Oh, th- thank you. Thank it's you very much. It's the second best podcast there is, genuinely. Well, that's contested <laughs> in some circles. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's incredible. You can stand at the airport, I can just oh, click on that and then on the flight back from Edinburgh down to 
uh, London, I could have a listen to that. And that's amazing. I couldn't listen to radio up there. I could have watched something streaming on my phone, which I think is probably you know one of the areas that as technology improves, it also opens up a lot of competition. Mm. Um, certainly where podcasting a couple of years ago, a lot of people would have thought, I'll download that uh, because I'm going on a run or I'm sitting on the tube or whatever it may be and I want to listen to something. Actually, technology now has made it possible to download a couple of shows off the iPlayer and do that as well as or instead. So so technology, I think, helps the podcast market as much as it challenges it. Yes, but then you you would be ill-advised to watch shows that you downloaded off iPlayer whilst driving. <laughs> yes, whilst driving. Yes. yes, you're right. A note to listeners, please do not watch television while driving. That That is unsafe. <laughs> yeah, whereas podcasts, relatively safe. I think the good thing about podcasts is the fact that it pre-downloads it as well, because I mm. often listen to them when I'm on the tube and there's no reception, but I can go yes. into my podcast app and there's eight that have already waiting for me. So I think, well, which one am I going to do? I'm sport for choice. Exactly. When people saying, oh, streaming's the future, I think it's quite a long way off that there is comprehensive coverage everywhere in the country. And this is a pretty small country and there are a lot of black spots. Even in London, there are lots of black spots and you can be underground a lot of the time. So yeah, it is a real boon. And I've stockpiled several thousand podcasts for really long tube trips. Wow. Tell us about Answer Me This then. How, how does the production schedule go? It's every week, isn't it? Is that... it's, it's now every fortnight because right. uh, my co-host, Ollie Mann, uh, has a job now uh, presenting on LBC does 1 till 4 in job. the morning. Absolutely. Poor bloke. I haven't heard it because it's 1 till 4 in the morning and because I have to listen to him the rest of the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we'll actually, I mean, it takes about... Two and a half, three days to put an episode together. Wow. We've always worked really hard on it, but otherwise it just wouldn't have worked out. No one would have listened to it at the beginning because we're not famous and it wouldn't have been good. So those two things would have meant it was just dead in the water, whereas we put a lot of effort into that and marketing it because Ollie has a very good mind for, for pushing stuff. But I think the listeners can tell that there's some effort and there are some people who love really long unedited podcasts, but I think that is a very arrogant kind of podcast and mm. everything benefits from editing. And the internet is super entertaining, so why would you listen to something that is just someone else rambling on for hours when you could be doing something else that's better? That's true, and I think there's, it's very misleading. I do think this could could be the golden age of podcasts, but there's a difference between saying um, podcasts are easily available and podcasts are easy to make, and they're going to succeed because everyone's going to go and make them. It's like, well, yes, just because you can buy a USB mic for your computer doesn't mean your podcast might be rubbish and that mm. nobody will listen to it. Like, Obviously, both your podcasts take... They do take a lot of work and yep. experience and professionalism and research and time and editing and, and all that. So um, some people say, oh, there's so many podcasts. It's going to, yeah, it's going to explode. That's not the reason I think podcasts are, are going to do well. I think um, it's been somewhat of a surprise to me and Ollie that during the time we've been doing it, there haven't been many other independent podcasts made by nobodies that have I'm a nobody are. as well. I, yeah. I get imposter syndrome. <laughs> yeah, but the, the, it's it's hard for them to become visible. I think because now there are a lot of famous people making podcasts, and then you've got all the BBC output that's podcasted, for instance, mm. and spin-offs of TV shows. Well, the biggest media podcast is Steve Hewlett's show on Radio yeah. Four. I mean, he's got the the whole evil masses and resources of the BBC behind him. So, well, he'd better watch his step when you're, when you're greasing the stairs behind him. Absolutely. <laughs> but again, that's a different like the whole the, the BBC approach to podcasting is a very different one to yours, of course, which is we'll repackage something that's been on air in a format that's easy to use. And hopefully that benefits the whole podcasting community, you would think, think so. because if it gets people in the habit of, wow, podcasts are brilliant and easy medium to use and I like enjoy mm. using it, then they'll yeah. find answer me this and it's also a way of time shifting as well. So I yes. love the Friday Night Comedy podcast, but it basically is just 
iPlayer that's automatically downloaded, isn't it? I, I love the Infinite Monkey Cage as well, because Robin Ince introduces that by saying, welcome to this. Uh, this includes extra bits that were deemed not good enough to air on Radio 4. <laughs> <laughs> but people love that, feeling like they've got a special bit of attention. Mayo and Kermo do that as well, and Richard yeah, Bacon has bits especially for the podcast listener. But I never really listen to live radio anymore, because... Why would you? Well, yeah, it's, it's all there when I want it. I'm in charge now. Do you think there's an increased kind of specialisation with podcasts? Because clearly it's only going to be people semi-interested in the media listen to this kind of podcast. But answer me, this has got a much broader broader uh, remit and li- listenership, I would imagine. It's a very mainstream sort of show, and also our topics are extremely varied. In each show, we try mm. and have um, quite, a, quite an eclectic selection of stuff, so it's not all history questions or all personal problems, which means that if the listener is not particularly engaged with one subject, they know there'll be another one along in a few minutes. So, yeah, it does have, it, it's, it's really exciting when the listeners get in touch. It's only a small proportion that actually contact us. But still, like, there'll be 12 year olds, there are middle aged cage fighters, there are grandparents. <laughs> and I just think that is great that they've all got this thing in common. And probably if they met us, they wouldn't want to listen to us talking at all. I think, as well with podcasts, I think you almost, you, know, you talk about on radio, you get this really like personal relationship with the presenter and all that. I think in podcasts, it's even one step more i think you get a real personal connection with the podcaster because it's they're talking directly to you you've bothered to subscribe mm-hmm. the audience is maybe smaller but it's it's niche and it's on the thing that you want and it can be you know with your podcast it's so like you email us we'll cover on the podcast it's, yeah, it's, it's, no it's a lovely to... it's mm-hmm. a lovely connection that yeah. i think gives it real strength and also um some podcasters think that it's because uh, the listener is often moving around while listening to you on a portable device. So they create a kind of sense memory. They're like, oh, these people have been gardening with me or, yeah, or to the gym yeah, yeah. or something like that. I never thought of it like that. Do you ever get anonymous bits of feedback? Someone sent one in about four weeks ago that said, Paul, you're an all right presenter, but you talk too much. Just shut up a bit more and let the <laughs> guests speak. Do you know, I actually took that as positive feedback. So yeah. I'm going to learn from that. We, we've had uh, some some striking iTunes reviews. One guy was like... <laughs> I hate these people's personalities. I think they're dicks, but I can't stop listening. And uh, someone That's else, nice of him. Someone else said, um, I don't usually find women funny, but Helen is just like a man. And I thought, as a compliment, <laughs> that is offensive in so many ways. Wow. Yeah. And from podcast to proper radio, why are political phone-ins so popular? With Cole Clegg and Ask Boris doing so well, LBC host Nick Ferrari has recently criticised the Labour Party for not wanting to do an equivalent, which I imagine would be called something like Maul Miliband. Tim, why are these shows so popular and will Labour inevitably have to give in? Well, I think, as to why they're so successful, I think there's a couple of things that have come together beautifully. One is the political interviews are boring. Often, <laughs> lately, more recently, of recent years. You want to see them savaged by, you know, incoming callers who drive a cab, etc. Well, yes. exa- exactly. I mean, sa- sa- the relentless savagings by Paxman and Humphreys have, in part, perhaps led to this culture where every minister who ever goes on any show anywhere is briefed to the hilt. It because this PR organised. It's like the thick of it, but with less of the blunders because mm-hmm. actually. They just do the briefing and here are the notes and here's the line I'm going to deliver uh, and there we go. There's a great article recently, if you Google uh, Ian Katz, who's the editor of... Newsnight. Katz with a K, editor of Newsnight. Ian Katz, Financial Times, political. You'll find his article about 
how we need to do something about the political interview and we need to get these politicians to relax, spend a bit longer with them and get them to talk about themselves, be themselves, be allowed to say a few things that are off the script without everyone tearing them to shreds for it. Because mm. so if you think aloud, it's, it's, the media yeah. characterise it as a gaffe or as some kind of accident. Exactly. And I mean, the, 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 the press are, are there and waiting to pounce. So there's the fact that political interviews got a bit boring, I think, combined with the enduring, endless love affair we all have with the phone-in. Which as many as much as most people go, oh, I hate phone-ins. They're, they are quite addictive, and anything can happen. And it's uh, inverted commas real people, um, you know, on air talking to politicians. So you bring them together, and you have Nick Clegg, who, you know, his, his personal leadership ratings weren't very good, so he started doing these monthly, or was it even weekly press briefings? Yeah. Is it weekly press briefings? Yeah. And then call Clegg as well. Um, so he, he took it on, and you know, good on him because it's not easy to do. And as much as he goes, this might raise my profile. I will get in the press. He's still going to take a kick. A lot. You get yeah. a kicking, and they set him up for it, and he knows it's coming. And but, but I think they've achieved that that trade off. So there's a bit of drama. There's a bit of you know headline grabbing stuff. You've got the unexpected with difficult callers, and you've got someone in a very senior, you know, very senior political role saying, "Okay, look, I'll give you an hour where I'll actually." Talk to people and you can scrutinise what I do. And he's brave, if you like, for doing that. I, I also have massive sympathy with Labour for not wanting to do it. Oh, quite right. Helen, do you think it's that, you know, the interrogators have actually kind of lost cred? They pretend to ask the questions that people, real people want, but the best people to ask real people questions are real people. Well, that's a fair point, yes, because the interrogators are often quite insulated from problems that beset people of maybe a lower income bracket. And also, yeah, you do get that whiff of media training from both sides. So some of the spontaneous moments in, in the phone-ins are really interesting, especially when the politician can deal with them and actually looks like a human being rather than just trotting out predetermined lines. And also people like politicians show a bit of sense of humour, like mm. when Barack Obama was on Between Two Ferns, the uh, comedy brilliant. web video. Exactly, everyone, uh, people just thought, oh, he is a real person after all, rather than just this man in the papers. Um, but I think for LBC, it's just very obvious uh, ratings winning tactic, and quite nakedly so. And uh, it was particularly getting Nigel Farage on rather than uh, someone from the Labour Party. I'm sure someone would do it. They need, they need, <laughs> uh, they need the popularity. Do you think it's people like Nigel Farage and Boris? They're very accessible, and people, the electorate, feel a bit of a connection. Whereas someone like potentially said Miliband or Harriet Harman, they don't really have that level of connection, and maybe they can't speak human. I suppose because uh, Boris and Farage have kind of pantomime villain status. And I think the problem with Miliband is that people aren't that engaged with his personality, whatever that is. I mean, he's not, he's not a big, he's, not, he's just not a big character. <laughs> I mean, there, there's probably a lot going on beneath the, uh, the publicly facing surface, but it's not really known. And uh, yeah, I, I'd imagine someone like Boris would actually love taking on callers that are angry and not every politician but you know i think that. politicians that seem to do well are the kind of the the electorate can imagine having a pint with them so it's not just boris and farage but people like tony blair whatever he was right Ugh. or wrong but people felt that he was a semi-normal bloke where really? like, well, he, he looked like a psychopath to me okay then i'm losing that one but like gordon <laughs> brown ed Miliband, william Hague, they don't you couldn't really take them for a pint could you i don't know i'm feeling the opposite things about these people than what you feel <laughs> Right, well, Tim, we'll ask you that question and hopefully you will answer it better and agree with the I premise. know exactly what you mean. I mean, there's no disguising the fact that Ed Miliband does have that image problem and that if he went on for an hour, he, he'd someone would have to shake him so vigorously that he lost all of his media training he'd ever had and became a normal human again um, to, to deal with those callers. Whereas it's made for Boris, who can 
you know, pull the wool over anyone's eyes about his actual policies by just being a bit of fun. <laughs> Boris. Oh, it's going to be terrible job. when that clown mask falls off, isn't it? Yeah, and you know, whether you agree the or disagree, it's hard not to like Boris Johnson when he's on the phone in the way he deals with people, the way mm. he deals with issues, the way he's up front, and, and so on and so forth. Ed Miliband just doesn't have that. And he, you know, he made a speech not long ago saying, I can't do that, but just listen to my policies, please. So mm. it's no surprise to me that he, he probably would not throw himself headlong into an hour-long phone-in on LBC, especially knowing that they would probably set up a couple of things for him to trip over on. But interestingly, given that he's got that attention and got that platform, he then says he has the opportunity to say certain policies. And then as a listener, I think I agree with you. So, for example, he's, uh, Boris is quite pro-immigration and so am I. He actually says that immigrants are a good thing for the economy. And he, he, he was on uh, Ask Boris a few weeks ago and he was talking about banning smoking in cars where there's children in there. And I thought, well, no other politician would dare do that. But for me, as a voter, I thought it was quite a sensible policy that I'd want to vote for. Mm. Do, you, do you think that it, there's, there's an art to, to kind of capturing the media's attention and being that character that gives you that space to think aloud that, say, Ed Miliband couldn't do? Because if he said something like that, people would just go crazy. Um, I think Boris can get away with anything. He's just got this incredible knack of being able to say what yeah. he wants. And even if people are like, I can't believe it, he gets away with it. And well, not many other people have that. Also, if you make enough blunders from the word go, the press are less interested in your mm. gaffes. Mm. So it's Boris cunning, has makes so many that the pre- it's not interesting. Whereas every other politician is so well groomed that when they make one tiny slip up, that's the front page the next day. Boris gets away with it very well. I think any politician, if they have a good relationship with the broadcaster, there's a bit of to and fro. It's like... You know, the politician knows the broadcaster may sort of trip them up in as much as just put on a difficult caller, for example. I think the broadcaster, if it's an hour, must acknowledge that the uh, political guest must be allowed to talk about their policy. And I, I hope there's more of a move towards that. That Ian Katz article in the Financial Times, he talks about it's got to be give and take. It can't be like, you, you are allowed half a sentence before we ask you another tough question. Mm. It's like, let's at least let you set out your stall and tell us what your policies are about in a bit of detail before we get to the, the, the difficult bit. And also, it is a, another facet in the illusion that uh, the populist, the electorate, can have a more direct relationship with uh, our controlling politicians. So, like in the last election, they're all doing mum's net Q&A. And that was thought to be you know, a very honest, thing. Un- yeah, unfiltered form of communication. They all have to be on Twitter, even if they don't particularly want to be. So maybe this is it. And yet it is fundamentally one-sided relationship, isn't it? They're doing more broadcasting than mm. the populists. Tim, do you think it's something that only LBC could do? Um, you know, at the Jeremy Vine show, you couldn't just put one politician on every week, could you? Because you'd have to then do all the other parties. Yeah, we could never do that really, because we'd have to get absolute agreement amongst all the parties that they're going to do this on a regular oh, basis with the right level of balance and the yeah, right too much for us, the, not for us. At the right level, mm. Exa- exactly. I mean, yeah. LBC... BBC could never do it on any station. No. I mean, we, we'll do one-offs. You know, we've done an hour of phoning with Nick Clegg. We've done... I, hate, I, I hasten to mention this, um, and I don't know if it's in the annals of things we don't speak of on the programme, but if my boss is listening, sorry... Um, but a, f- a few years ago, Miliband came on and did an hour-long phone-in and got torn to shreds, torn to shreds by callers, and the next day was front page on the Daily Mail. Whether that's had any influence on um, how he feels about hour-long phone-ins, I don't know. Well, I think we're coming to the end of our metaphorical tape here, guys. So what we need to do now is just inform our listeners how they can stalk you on social media, follow you on Twitter. Helen, should we start with you? Oh, super. Uh, I'm at Helen Zaltzman on Twitter. That is two Zs and one N. Excellent. And how do people listen to Answer Me This? How do they subscribe? Well, they can go to answermethispodcast.com for myriad methods, or they can just search for it on iTunes or other podcatchers. A miracle. Isn't it? <laughs> Tim? Um, I tweet stuff at um, T-I-M-O-N 
C-H-E-E-S-E. Tim on cheese. <laughs> didn't didn't yeah. want to say I those words, did you? Cheese. I could have spelled out my surname to make it easier, and yet you, you have three common words you declined to say. Look, Tim on cheese is my Yahoo username for when I was like 11, and it's quite embarrassing that it still is. So just just be aware that I'm embarrassed. Just briefly then, why? Why Tim on cheese? I was on my... Com- I remember it. I was on my computer. I was eating cheese on toast. I needed a thing. I was like, cheese on toast. I don't know, Tim on cheese. There we go. But the it's cheese stuck. is on the toast. You're not on the cheese. Why not Tim on toast? That would yeah. have alliterated. Yeah. Well, in broadcast, it's always a good thing to flip things on their head. So uh, that's clearly I was learning from a young age. Yeah, but in, in cookery terms, very bad <laughs> to flip cheese on toast the wrong way up. I wouldn't win on the bake-off. Mm-mm. Well, on that fermented bovine lactose <laughs> note, uh, I think that's it. If you want to follow me, uh, listeners, then if you're not already doing so, shame on you, but it's at Paul W.R. Blanchard. The associate producer was Jordan Greenaway. I'm Paul Blanchard. Catch you next time. A Big Things Media Production. <laughs> Big Things.